Let's uh, turn to uh, the passage that's before us in 2 Samuel 7, verse 1 through 17. We're continuing our series called God's Big Picture. Um, you can have the, your Bible out. If you don't have one, uh, take one that's next to you. You can even keep it, take it home if you want to. Um, otherwise, take a look at the bulletin or your worship folder there. And um, let's follow along in the text as we work through this today. Uh, at Liberty, um, you've probably noticed, or one of the things at least I picked up on, maybe it was from hanging out with Jeff Bradford for three or four weeks, is um, we talk quite a bit about identity and a lot about what it means to find meaning in your life. And so I know that um, every one of you seeks to find worth in some way and seeks to find fulfillment and meaning in some way, something you can wrap yourself around. And um, that may be... You may be tempted to find that in a number of places. It may be through your career. It may be through some relationships. It may be through something else that you're looking for. But sometimes what happens is we're looking for these things. We allow our desires for them to control us so much uh, that they prevent us from finding our identity in Christ and in Jesus. And one of the things that um, Steve and I are hoping to do in this series is as we're reminding you of the Bible storyline... We want to remind you, again, that you're created in God's image. You were created for a purpose. And even though in sin you have rejected that purpose and you have filled yourselves with all sorts of other things, Jesus Christ is the only way for you to find renewal, restoration, that you can be the people that you were intended to be. He's the only one who's going to help you set aside all those other things you're finding your worth in and you're finding your identity in. And uh, today what I want to do is I kind of want to shift the focus very slightly. So the word that keeps coming to my mind is not identity as I was preparing for this, this message, but the word legitimacy. Legitimacy. And I think this is, gives us another angle on the identity question. So oftentimes what happens is as we're making huge decisions who am I going to marry? What job am I going to take? Am I going back to grad school or not? Where am I going to live? One of the things that happens is we want everyone else's stamp of approval on those things. Do you know what I mean? We want to find, um, first of all, it would be great, like whether you're a Christian or not, you probably experience this. You just want everybody else around you to approve of that decision and say, hey, good job. You made the right decision. (laughs) And the hard thing is uh, the more important the decision is, the more people are going to have strong opinions, you know, your family and your friends. Do that. Or yes, please do that. And another thing that we do, if you're a Christian, probably you even add weight on top of that. And you really want God to sort of endorse your opinion or give you his stamp of approval upon that decision that you're making. If only what I'm doing can matter. If only what I can do is, is the will of God. And I can know that for certain. So as an illustration of this, um, recently I was watching um, Parks and Recreation. Does that surprise you? <laughs> what does Dwayne do in his spare time? And uh, those of you who watch the show know Leslie Nope is kind of the uh, sort of pathetic but lovable, um, what is she, deputy director of parks in a small Midwestern town called Pawnee. And uh, what she wants to do is she wants to run for the very glamorous position of city council member of Pawnee. And she throws her whole life into it. She's vested in it. She, it's so important. And what happened in this episode that I was watching is, uh, in order to, I think, to bolster her candidacy, she kind of writes a book about Pawnee, and it's the authoritative take on what's happening to prove to all the citizens that she is legitimate, 
but the journalists get hold of a problem. She wasn't born in Pawnee. <laughs> and then they challenge her legitimacy and say, how can you know anything about it if you weren't born there? And it's really funny. You know, she's, she's kind of bending over backwards to prove the fact that she's legitimate. She was born in Pawnee. But then it turns out, of course, at the end that we find out, no, she was not. <laughs> she was actually born in, like, the neighboring town. What was it? Eagleton? <laughs> where all the snobby people live. <laughs> and the reason, it's kind of funny that she had to go there, was because the hospital in Pawnee the day she was born had been overrun by raccoons or something. So, <laughs> sounds like brewery town. <clears throat> and as I was reading 2 Samuel 7, okay, this is going to sound kind of crazy. But I think that there's something similar going on, not only in our own lives, not only in the life of uh, the pathetic and lovable Leslie Nope, but also in the life of David, King David, who we all admire and honor. Something similar is going on when he says, I want to build a house for you, God. I want to do something for you. Okay, so what's happened here is David is the king. So we have a nation. There's an entire nation, the people of Israel. They have a king. They have a city, which is their capital city, Jerusalem. If you look at verses 1 through 3, you'll see that there is um, resting involved. They have, um, David is living in his palace. The, the wars are over. And he says, things still remain unfinished. Things still remain incomplete. I need to, listen, I'm an ancient Near Eastern king. What do they do? They build temples to show not only political unity, but religious unity. So now is the time we have to build a temple for God. And that's what he means when he says, I want to build a house for God. And it's not necessarily a bad idea, but what you'll notice in this passage is that God rejects the idea, not of building a temple. If you read Deuteronomy 12, you'll see that this is the plan that God had all along. But he says, not in your way, not in your time, stop being so anxious about it, stop freaking out. We're going to build this and do this in my time and in my way. I am not going to put my seal and my stamp of approval on your project. You are going to follow along in the path of what I'm doing in building my kingdom, which is greater than your kingdom. It's greater than what you can do. You want to build me a house? This is one of those passages where I think God sort of laughs. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a royal dynasty. I am the one who will establish my throne. I will establish my kingdom. And so the message today is this, because God is establishing his everlasting kingdom, this great kingdom which will come to fulfillment in the, the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, the eternal king. He's calling you to set aside your quest for legitimacy, set aside your need for the approval of other people, set aside your need for their acceptance and worship him and turn to him and trust in him. And so the question is this, how do we stop? How do we do that? How do we set these things aside? How do we stop worrying so much about um, legitimacy and looking for this stamp and seal of approval? How do we set aside our longing for approval? And I think the passage teaches three ways. Number one, remember who God is and what he's done. Remember who he, who he is and what he's done in the past. 
Secondly, rest in his presence now in what he's doing presently for you. And number three, wait for him and his guidance and his direction with patience for what he's going to do in the future. He is the God of yesterday, today, and forever, who has worked, who is working, and who will work. And we see that nowhere more clearly than in the life of David, and especially in this passage. Okay, so uh, point number one, who he is and what he's done. Remember who he is and what he's done. Take a look back at the passage. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9, really probably 4 through 9. Okay, who is this Lord? He is the God who speaks. He will not remain silent. Take a look at verse at verse 5. He says, it says, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David. See, even in correcting David, he condescends to speak to him. And he doesn't speak to him as one who's far away. He speaks to him on an intimate, personal, relational level. He still calls him my servant. Yes, I don't think this is a good idea what David is, is planning. But even as God reorients him, he says, I am the one who has been with you. You are in my hands. And notice he not only speaks, he is also a living God, one who is free, one who is on the move. He has not lived in a house. He has not needed a house. Because a temple cannot actually contain him. A temple can't contain him. What's the temple then? The temple is the representation of where he dwells on earth. I will meet with you here. I will visit you here. I will come to you here. But to think that the God who created everything, all of heaven and all of earth and everything, could be limited to a temple is ridiculous. It's, 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 it's a ludicrous idea. And that means that he is not one who can be controlled. He is not one who can be manipulated. He can't even be co-opted for our purposes, as we sometimes attempt to make him do. No, this is the living, the moving, speaking God, and he acts in human history according to his own purposes. According to his own purposes. Look at verse 6. He brought up the people of Israel from Egypt. What was his purpose? The purpose of this wildly free God was to redeem a people for himself. It was to love them, to take them out of their sin, to take them out of their misery. And he alone could do it. He just says, I'm going to do it in my own way. And that's the same thing he did with with Noah. It's the same thing he did with Abraham. It's the same thing he did with Moses. And as you're reading these stories and following them along, either in in the, the sermon series or in your home meetings or just your own personal Bible reading, one of the things that you'll notice is everybody gets kind of frantic somewhere along the way. Abraham taking Hagar and saying, we're going to make this thing happen. Or Moses and the people when they, they sort of reject and worship the, the, the golden calf and say, hey, we're going to do this thing our way. And here with David again. But this God is moving on his own terms. And, and it, it, it is nations. It is Israel. It is a large-scale thing, but it applies to particular individuals. Look at verses 8 and 9. It's one of the things that really comforts me about this passage. He not only talks about what he's done for the entire people, he also talks about what he has done for David. He says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. He has graciously lifted David up. He used to be a guy chasing animals around. It's not a very glorious job. It's not a very glamorous job. But he says, I'm going to make you the one who cared for animals. I'm going to turn you into one who cares for people. All by my grace. All by my grace. And what comes with that 
is not only this transformation, but God's presence that goes with David. Look what he says. He says, verse 9, I have been with you wherever you went. And, I, and the result of that is that he has cut off all the enemies from before him. So wherever he goes, he has not only a position of authority, but the presence of God. And everything that comes with that, guidance, provision, direction, strength, every blessing that we can think of. And that's no small thing because David acts as the king, as the representative of this entire people. So the fate of the king is the fate of the people. If God goes with David, God goes with the people. If God blesses David, God blesses the people. What happens with him happens with them. So they, and think of, think of this people. Just like us. They are stubborn. They're called stiff-necked. They're constantly turning away. They're constantly trying to worship idols. They're constantly trying to find their own path to do what is right in their own hearts. What do they need? A ruler who is faithful. A ruler who is righteous. A ruler who will protect them. A ruler who will guide them back. Who will be God's man on their behalf. One who will remember who the Lord is. And what he has done. So for us, that means, uh, if we can start to kind of apply this a little bit, is a great place to start. A great place to start wherever you find yourself today. Especially if you're trying to control some situation that you're in. Especially if you're trying to make a momentous decision. Especially if you're looking for approval or acceptance. Start by telling the story. And I know I've said this again and again. But tell your story. God's faithfulness. Where has he been at work in the mix, in this situation, in this scenario. One of my favorite things over the last couple of weeks has been um, doing in-covenant interviews. So meeting with people who want to uh, join together with others at Liberty to worship God together and be in community with them. And one of my favorite things about this is just, I mean, I, I have the best job in the world. What I get to do is hear people tell their stories. And it's fun because sometimes people are a little nervous. <laughs> What's this interviewing thing? It feels kind of formal. I get called intimidating all the time. No, I'm I'm like the least intimidating person. When I was teaching high school, I mean, the first day I would come in, you you know what I did? I would throw somebody out of class the first day every year. Because I knew that otherwise I'd get walked all over. They'd think I'm just kind of like a happy Mr. Rogers looking sweater wearing guy. So... Anyway, the interviews shouldn't be intimidating because they're a fantastic opportunity for you guys to tell your story. And one of the reasons I say, hey, I've, I've got the best job in the world is because I just get to hear, hear people tell the story. God was faithful in this way. A coworker shared their faith in Christ with me. I grew up in the church and my parents used to pray for me. And this is how now I have embraced the faith. This is what Jesus has done. Jesus is helping me right now in a struggle that I'm going through. And I, I'm, I'm not even sure where it's going to land or where it's going to go. And as everybody's telling these stories, you know, sometimes I feel like they, they want the story to fit or they want the story to be right. But I'm just like, yes, look at what Jesus is doing. Yes, articulate that. Yes, thank him. Yes, be encouraged. Yes, praise him. And find an opportunity to tell that story as often as you can. Not just to me, not just to folks um, in the church, to your neighbors and to your coworkers and to everybody that you see. Tell that story and this larger story, this story of the Bible, this story of what he's doing, who God is, and what he has done. He has been faithful. 
He has been very faithful. Um, Julie and I, one of my favorite moments recently is we were just telling the story of the last six years of our lives. And it was just, um, you know, sort of a path that went this way when we expected it to go that way. Crazy, moving around. And a lot of you guys have heard the stories. I won't, I won't repeat them all here again. But one of the best things to do is just to, to look back and kind of see, oh, yeah, that's where God was going. That's what he was doing. This is why he had us ha- do this. And this is how we're changed. We're not the same people that we used to be. We have had an encounter with the living Christ. We have encountered Jesus, and we're following him, and he is at work changing us. And I don't have time. I didn't print in the bulletin verses 18 through 29, but go home. You can write it down. Go home and read the rest of the thing. Because after David is reoriented, after he has his vision reoriented, this is what he does. He thanks God. And it's like 20 verses of thanking God. And these are some of the things he says. He says, Lord, you are great. He says, there is none like you. There is no God beside you who is like you. Remember who God is and what he has done for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ at large in this world and as it applies to you particularly. Okay, let's look at the second point. The second way that we can stop worrying so much about um, legitimacy is by resting, resting in his presence and the way that he's working now. He continues to work. And we're going to look at verses um, 9 through 11, just a short chunk there. Um, One of the things that Steve and I have said again and again throughout the series is that God's redemptive purposes involve giving his people a place. It's about people, and it's about a place. And when the people arrive in that place, what they will have is rest. They will have rest. Look at verse... um, Look at verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place. And the net effect is they will be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more. They will have rest from all of their enemies. The picture of planting, the picture of a people and a place is a picture of rest that God grants to them. When you think about Israel's history, you see that rest is hard to come by. Again, to sweep through the story just real quickly, Adam and Eve had it, then they lost it. That's the point of Genesis 3. Think of Noah. Looks good uh, that he's a righteous man following God by faith, but he's surrounded by wickedness, and like living on an ark for 40 days doesn't sound like the idea of rest to me. Think of Abraham. He's going from place to place. He's planting these uh, temples and these sanctuaries, not temples, sorry, altars, places to worship. And we want to kind of get behind that and say, yes, look at him. He's on the move and he's going out. But it's not a restful life. Think of Israel. They become slaves to Egypt. And even though they get set free, what happens? They're wandering in the desert year after year after year. And then under Joshua, they finally get the land. But they don't finish taking it. And more than any place in the entire Old Testament and commentators in 2 Samuel 7, they call this like the most important passage in the Old Testament (laughs) all over the place. They're like, this is central. This is key. This is huge. Why? Because now true rest has actually arrived. They have more cause now to celebrate than they ever have. We have a nation. We have a king. We have a place where we can worship Jerusalem. But those things aren't finished yet. They have it. They need to rest in it. But there's a forward-looking 
way for them to be. Their story is not finished. They need to celebrate. They need to enjoy. They need to appreciate. But the promise is a future promise. As the author of Hebrews says, there remains a better rest to come. And I think for us, it's hard to rest. Is it hard for you to rest? I was, we were praying before um, for communion and for the worship service, and as I was thinking through and praying, I realized humans sort of have it, have it like we're, we try as hard as we can not to rest, not to relax, not to take our hands off. So often what we're doing is we're gripping control of a situation and trying to make it go the way we want it to. And Jesus is saying, release your hands, receive from me what I have and where I am and who I am. Uh, one of my favorite novels to teach when I was teaching high school was Frankenstein. And it's not, you know, the, the, the Boris Karloff version, which is great, too. I love that. You know, the old black and white where he can't, you know, can't speak. He's just grunting around. But uh, Mary Shelley's version is a little bit different. And, of course, Victor, the, the, the story is named after Victor Frankenstein, who's the guy who, who creates the creature. And it is a picture, if for those of you who have read it, it's a picture of a person who cannot rest. It's a picture of a person who cannot rest. He allows his desire for knowledge to control him so much that he robs graves and, you know, pieces together this hideous creature. And then he's so overcome with hatred for what he's created that he chases the monster around, this uh, misshapen creature, all over Europe, all through. I mean, he ends up, like, in the Arctic. It's kind of crazy. All the way driven by his desire to control the creature that he had once created. So he has a desire for knowledge, and then it gets replaced by a desire for control, and it gets replaced by another desire, and desires are springing up everywhere. And in the wake, as he's just chasing after this monster, you know, this person's dying, this person's dying. By the end of the story, like almost all of his relatives and, and the people he loves are dead. And then he himself, of course, at the end is dead. It's a great tragedy. Those are the best. <laughs> Those are the best kind. <laughs> but, you know, what am things about this book is not the whole bit with the monster, with the creature, and all of that. It's like every five or six chapters, Mary Shelley takes Victor Frankenstein and sets him away, like into the countryside, into the Alps. And the, one, the picture I remember the most, he's trying to escape from his desires. He's trying to escape from his need to control. And he's kind of in a boat, lying down. I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but he's in this boat. And it's this alpine, serene, natural landscape. And the lightning is flaring. And the Alps are up here. And he just tries to lose himself in the moment, in nature, and have it just kind of wash over him and escape his desires. But, of course, what happens, 15 minutes later, he has to get up. He has to row the boat in. He has to get up. The creature is still there. His desires are still there. The freedom that he was looking for could not be found in nature. And this scene shows that his real desire, more than a desire for knowledge, more than a desire for power, more than a desire to be the creator, is to be free from the desires that are plaguing him and controlling him. His desires for peace. His desires for rest. His desire is for renewal. But his desires won't leave him alone. And it's hard for us to rest because we all have hearts. Your heart was created with a desire to find worth, to find fulfillment, to find what matters. But the desires that we have have been wrecked wrecked by the fall. 
It's sort of like somebody came in and just took the thermostat off the wall and just took a baseball bat and hacked it to death. So there's like no control. There's no check over those desires. Maybe for you, who knows? It may be a desire for freedom. It may be the desire for authority. It may be a desire for the classic money, sex, power, or approval, or acceptance, or security, or comfort. And even when, those, when the desire or those things in themselves aren't bad, when the desires turn against you, when the desires control you, when the desires rule you so that you are looking those, for those things and fulfillment and worth apart from the living God, apart from his son Jesus, you will do anything to see them fulfilled. But like Victor, you walk away from the boat and you're still not satisfied. You're still empty. You're still looking for something, And that creates, in me at least, a desire to grab hold of everything, to perform, to achieve, to succeed, to control, to have all of my life in a box that I can understand and that looks nice on the outside. But Jesus is calling you, he's calling me, he's calling us to rest. He's calling us to open our hands and to receive his presence where he is and where you are even right now. And the question is, how do you find that rest? How do you find that rest? The third point is this, by waiting for his kingdom to come with patience. Let's look at verse 11 through 17. Let's look at verse 11 through 17. David's rest presently is wrapped up in a future rest. And that means that Israel's present rest is wrapped up in the promise of a future rest. And what that means is this. God's people have something, but they're waiting for more. They have something, but they're waiting for more. And I want to look at what this is, what the still to come is for Israel. And I just want to list, uh, we'll run through these kind of quickly, um, four or five things that he promises to David. This is the heart of the passage, but we'll move quickly as we wind up. Verse 11, the Lord will make you a house. The Lord will make you a house. You wanted to make me a temple. I'm going to make you a royal dynasty. I'm going to have children come from you, and they are going to rule one after another so that the people never lack a ruler sitting on the throne. Two, that means that you are going to need an offspring. Look at verse 12. You'll need a son. I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body. And he says... I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the Lord is building a house. He's going to give David an offspring. And that offspring will have a kingdom, not one that's established in his own power, but established by the living God. Thirdly, this kingdom will be better than any other kingdom that the world has ever known. In fact, it will be the kingdom of God. It will last forever. Look at verse 13. It says, the kingdom will last forever. And again in verse 16, the kingdom shall be made sure forever. And the future king will be a son of God. Look at verse 14. And God's steadfast love will not depart for him. So much for David's plan. 
David thought his plan was huge. God says it looks small in comparison with the thing that I had planned. You were limiting yourself by your own attempt to find a seal of approval or a stamp of approval. And there are two horizons at work here. Yes, God will literally give David a son. He'll give him Solomon. Yes, Solomon will build a temple. Yes, the people will be able to worship there. Yes, Israel will have a king, one right after the other. But more than that, these verses provide us with the seed of a messianic hope, if I can put it that way. They provide us with the foundation for the Christian hope. You see, the people of God in every generation need a righteous ruler. And one by one, the kings of Israel will fail. The people of God need a representative who will stand for them and who will take upon him their sins. They need a salvation that will last, not momentarily, but forever. Forever. What a word, forever. And who's going to provide it? The New Testament writers go nuts with this stuff. It is all over the place. Jesus Christ is the son of David that we were longing for. Luke says in his genealogy, Jesus is the son of David and the son of God. Paul writes to the Galatians, the promise would become coming through an offspring. And he makes a kind of technical point that you can get lost in. Singular, not plural. One offspring of Abraham's seed. The gospel will come through there. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus alone is the son of God, greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than the entire sacrificial system. Again, my favorite picture of this is Revelation 4 and 5, the throne room of God, where, where the angels and elders cry out, who is worthy to open the seal of all of human history and provide redemption for the people of God, only the lion of the tribe of Judah, only the son of David, who is the lamb that was slain. He is the lamb that was slain. That's who we are being pointed towards. That's who we have to look to. That's who we find our hope and our strength and our trust in. So, so the reminder this morning is to remember who God is and who, what he has done in your life personally. It's to rest in Jesus presently, but it's also to look forward to this Jesus who has come and provides for these things, but also who will come again, who will return to make all things whole, to make all things new, to reign and rule forever and ever. So will you wait for him? Will you wait for him with patience? That big perspective puts some perspective on our attempts to, to gain control in our performance, in our law-keeping, in our achievement. Only Jesus, only Jesus can take these things and guide you through them. And he's calling you to yield your heart to him, to see him as a king, to see him as a king. So think, think maybe of one area of your life where he is calling you to stop grasping and to stop trying to control and to stop trying to manipulate God to be on your side and in your favor. For me, it's my future. <laughs> That's a huge one. Where am I going to be in seven months? <laughs> I'm like, I'm holding, I'm like holding it like this. <laughs> it's not, this isn't enough. It's sort of like I'm hunkered down, you know? And Jesus is saying, rest. He's saying, relax. He's saying, even your future is in control. See me as the king over it. See where I have brought you. See where I am now and see where I'm taking you. Do you see Jesus as a king? Do you see him as a king? If so, how would your life change?
How would your life change? Meditate and reflect on these things even as we turn to him in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for guiding and directing us. We thank you that you call us to remember who you are as our Savior. And you call us to rest, which seems darn near impossible sometimes. And you call us to renew our faith in you. Help us now, we pray, even as we come to communion. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.